Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Hilary Cottom, who is professor at the Institute of Innovation and Public Purpose at UCL. That's University College London. She's also author of Radical Help. Today, we're talking about social design, uh, rethinking our vertical post-war systems and ensuring that we're not simply putting 1950s systems online, but actually embracing a digital mindset with collaboration and sharing that are front and center. Being mindful that today's challenges are vast and urgent, and we need to think about them differently and rethink how we design new social systems that are fit for purpose. So whether you're a policymaker or a corporate strategist or want to glean what the future of our society could look like, today's episode is for you. So without further ado, Hilary, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Not at all. It's an absolute pleasure. You're here in the UK. I'm in the UK. No time difference whatsoever, which is a nice change from from what I usually have these days. Why don't we start off by finding out a little bit about the book that you wrote, Radical Help. What is Radical Help all about? Well, Radical Help is about how we should redesign our social systems. And I wrote the book because I feel all over the world, our welfare systems are failing us. They're designed for era and societies and economies that we no longer live in. And yet we've become really stuck that these issues have become kind of left-right divides. Everybody's got in the trenches. We're talking about more money, less money, more state, less state. But really, the question isn't how we can kind of tinker in those ways with what we've got. It's about what are the bigger questions we should be asking in this century about what a good life looks like and what kind of systems we should design to get to that life. And I wrote the book because I felt we really urgently need a much bigger public conversation about how we want to live now and what kind of systems we need to support that living. So the book's for the general public, basically, to kind of hopefully stimulate a conversation. Now, you don't need to be a policy wonk then in order to benefit from the book or... Not at all. My mother says she finally understands the work that I do. Um, and so, no, it's it's a book for, for the citizen, basically. And it's been translated into lots of languages, which is really nice, because I think these are kind of really pressing issues of our time. Excellent. Now, you're a professor at the Institute of Innovation and Public Purpose at UCL, University College yes. London. And one of the, I don't know, if I were characterizing your work or describing you, I think you, you have a really strong focus on social design, if that's yeah. a phrase that that resonates. Yeah, so I'm, I mean, really, I'm a practitioner, I work in communities, and alongside communities and local government and business, I build new models of welfare that show at a scale, what we should do to support families to support people who are old to support new forms of work. Um, and so I'm, I'm somebody who works with their sleeves rolled up, thousands of people can use this work. That's what's important to me. But I think in order to kind of make change in this century, we need to bring ideas and practice into much closer realignment. So it's really nice that I have this position at as, as a professor at UCL. Um, and what I love about it is that I teach. So I teach master's students from all over the world, um, both how to do social design. So I'm teaching practical methods. You know, um, if we want to kind of build something new, there's no point trying to build in the same old ways and mixing that with kind of ideas around kind of new forms of economy, uh, new ideas around kind of social practice. 
Excellent. So inspiring the next generation and hopefully getting them to think slightly differently than, than the way it's been done before. Yeah, and also being very inspired by them. I think what we know is the next generation also kind of really, really want to make change. I think that that's really, I mean, you talked about social design. I think it was 2004 when I was named as Britain's uh, designer of the year. I got incredible hate mail. Um, yeah. And a lot of public press that said Hillary Cotton is not a designer. I did not go to art school. I studied social sciences. And now all over the world, we have university courses in social design because young people who study design want to use their skills to change the world. They don't want to necessarily make a nicer shoe or a better handbag. And I think that that is just incredible. I love it. I, I love also the fact that, and I think it's you're absolutely right, uh, when I lecture, when you lecture, th there is something inspiring about those students, right? It's not Definitely. just it's not just a one-way street. It's certainly, it's a great degree of reciprocity. But I also teach in a kind of unusual way because my lectures are fully public. So we usually have about 100 people. We have citizens, other activists with the master's students, and we all learn together in a practical way. And that's really interesting. I'm mm -hmm. always a bit nervous, but it works and it's great. Well, good thing. Even though you didn't go to art school, here you are making some designs. It's going to be quite consequential for us. So, one of the time, one of the um, one of the phrases you used when we were speaking last time, uh, in terms of the, the status quo or the way things have been done so far, it's about sort of the the vertical post-war systems and, and 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 revisiting those and thinking about how things could be done differently. How would you characterize the status quo? The that that vertical post-war system. What what exactly are you talking about? And uh, and help us understand it. Yeah, so uh, I'm very interested in technology revolutions. And I think one of the things you see is that with every form of technology, our social systems essentially mirror that technology. So what we have at the moment are social welfare systems. I mean, I know in the US when we talk about welfare, we're talking about benefits, but I'm talking much more broadly about, as I say, systems to support families, health, and so on. Um, what we have are systems that look like industrial production lines. So if we take the idea of health, you know, you're given a number, you're lined up in a queue, you're put in a bed, you pass along the production line, the doctor gives you something and you come out the other end. Schools are the same. You go in according to your age, the bell rings, you get given a nugget of knowledge and you move to the next classroom. These are highly vertical industrial systems and when i say vertical they're also vertical because of how power is constructed so again if we think about health you know you have the chief executive and the doctor at the top and the patient at the bottom and you know any information needs to move you know up and down this kind of vertical hierarchy uh, to get anything done and this is not how the world is currently organized. If we think about uh, how, you know, both how kind of good companies work in very kind of horizontal network ways, if we think about digital technology, it's the metaphor, it's all about horizontal networks, that this is also what we need to think about when we design our social systems. And this is not just because it's easier to get things done and, you know, modern world works in these kind of horizontal ways. It's also because the kind of problems we face today are very different to the kind of big pressing problems that were uh, part of those kind of post-war industrial societies. So, I mean, I'm using health as an example, we could talk about lots of things, but health is a really good example, which is that most health challenges today are not infectious diseases. They're about how to live well with chronic conditions, uh, diabetes, heart conditions, and so on. Now, you can't cure those conditions in a vertical hospital system. We try to. 80% of our expenditure in current systems in the US and Europe is on putting people with chronic conditions into those 
very vertical medical systems. But actually living well, preventing chronic conditions is all about connections with clinicians, but connections with your neighbours, what happens in your workplace, who can motivate you to make lifestyle changes. So these are about, you know, literally, I think of this visually about how we kind of turn these very vertical authoritarian systems on their sides and, and get everything everybody in so I could say a lot more about this but I mean I think that is the kind of metaphor it's not only horizontal but it's let get let's get everybody in if it's chronic conditions if it's environmental crisis none of this is going to change just because we have a great CEO that passes a message down the pipeline it's going to be about all of us making change and working together in new ways I feel like I'm in one of your classes, which is great. I haven't I haven't been sitting in a class in a classroom for quite a while. But so, we like classes, don't we? Both of us also like to kind of study and learn, so it's good. I'd be sitting on the front in the front row, which which, <laughs> which is a good thing. You touched on digital and obviously the also the the new and changing nature of the challenges we're facing right now. And I can also obviously in the backdrop, I'm thinking about artificial intelligence and there are all sorts of things that are coming up, creeping up, right? Um, if I'm sitting in your classroom, what is it that I'm hearing from you? What is it that I'm that I'm going to be triggered to think about in terms of how we achieve what you just said? How do we flip things around? How do we turn them upside down? Perhaps how do we make it more collaborative? Um, what oh, that's sort of such a, yeah, it's a really big and brilliant question. I mean, I think what I would characterize is happening at the moment is that we are basically putting industrial post-war systems online so what we have a huge movement to kind of you know be able to get your driving license online or be able to apply for your doctor's appointment online or whatever it is so we're taking 1950 systems in 2023 and we're putting them online and what i would say is that let's think about this a bit differently let's think about a kind of digital mindset rather than kind of putting old things online what what can we what can we do differently now that would support social change, that would support all of us to flourish? So I think one of the things that's really important about the digital mindset is that it is about, I mean, you know, we could, we could critique this as well, but essentially it's about collaborating and sharing. It's about this idea of everybody in. So the old systems are all about assessing you and keeping you out. A metaphor for the new systems I design is how can we design things that are stronger the more people who use them? Because, of course, that's a kind of digital thing, isn't it? If you design a digital network, you, you know, you need to be Facebook. You need everybody to be in there to make it good. So um, a really good example of this, I think, would be the uh, services that I've designed with older people. Demographic change, big 21st century problem, not foreseen when our systems were designed. What what do people want in order to live well in that third age? Now, it turns out spending time in people's lives, which is what I spend a lot of, you know, on people's sofas, having Sunday lunches with people, connecting people together, just listening, listening, listening. People want uh, support, micro support. They don't want to be on some list. If the light bulb needs changing, they want it done now. That's really easy to do in the modern age. They want social connections between each other. And they want um, they want to kind of think about how to live a third age I'm in that age now, but how to live kind of a good life with purpose. And so uh, when you look at kind of traditional industrial aging services, they're all about fixed costs. They're about buildings for this, minibuses to get people from A to B. So what we did was we took a really, we took Salesforce technology basically, and we kind of just used it as a platform to put on it in neighborhoods, everything that is there, whatever you want to do, if you want to lift, if you want to use a building. And so this is a social network that enables kind of helpers and members 
to take care of each other in real time and enables massive social connection because we know this is a kind of, you know, we could talk a lot about social connection, loneliness, how this kind of affects your health and your well-being and everything else. So we have designed an, an aging system that uses technology instead of fixed costs. It's on demand and that basically is stronger than more people who use it. So it's completely inverting the logic of a post-industrial welfare system, which is let's measure everybody. You know, if you're not ill enough, you can't come in. We're saying, yes, everybody come in. The more people who are able, who have ideas, the more social connections, the stronger our service is going to be. And so it's proved to be. We have very good measures and very good outcomes for our service. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Now, it sounds to me, as I'm listening to everything that you're saying here, that perhaps there's some dots uh, that I'm connecting in my head that you've connected already that that would be really symbiotic and, and, and very useful. And I'm just thinking here, the stuff that you're describing seems fascinating from a policy perspective. So I can see how this could have really very consequential and beneficial effects for society. Likewise, though, if I'm stepping entirely away from the policy world and putting myself in a business school context or, or corporate strategy context, the sort of things that you've described here also would seem to be really useful in terms of the user journey, the benefits, the, the ability to participate. Um, and we always think about that alignment, right, between policy, commerce, philanthropy, sustainability. Uh, the more you can align and incentivize and sort of create the, that, that common denominator, the better. But am I spotting it correctly here in terms of that, that connection? It just seems to make sense both on the policy side and also on the corporate strategy side. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, that again, that question works on so many different levels. So if we think about aging, one of the things we saw, you know, in all the kind of places we work was this kind of jam jar economy that there's a lot of resource, the state has resource, private business has resource. I mean, one of the funders of that innovation project was Sky TV in the UK, because they needed customers that were over 50. And they didn't know how they had such old fashioned ideas about aging, they didn't know how to get those customers. And so the insight we provided them was incredibly useful and kind of challenge, you know, change that area of their business. But also, people have their own money so our idea was like how do we build something which takes everything up a level and gets all of that resource out of its jam jar and starting to circulate because then suddenly we actually prove that we have enough resource to support a good old age for everybody no matter who you are no matter what your private resources are so i think that that's kind of socially beneficial has a very different kind of partnership between the kind of citizen the state and business which is really important but also i agree with you are kind of really important methods for business i mean one of the things i see in my work is that and this is true of the state and business is that we tend to kind of everybody's very keen on participatory methods focus groups which i hate and other things like that but what people do is what matters is what are the questions we're asking and what happens with the state and business is that we go into communities but we ask the questions framed by our organization so you know again and something from my my kind of world would be like you know we say we've gone and asked the community we've asked them how they should make our health service better but they're not interested in our health service we need to say what does health look like for you what would we start to build with you and that is a kind of methodology and lesson that is really important for business i mean I don't know kind of whether you've ever had Professor Colin Mayer from Oxford, who would be a kind of great, but you know, he says that the corporation has been distorted and it's kind of creating problems, but really the corporation is there to solve world's problems. And I agree. And therefore, like, what are the kind of methods that can be used for that to happen? Hmm. When you're talking about it, we've done this with Sky and we've done that with health and who is we? What, give me a little bit of, uh, give us a little bit of insight into that, uh, that, uh, 
the, that history, as it were, yes. the work you've been doing. So, um, well, I've worked with kind of different organizations, but for a decade, I had my own um, social design group, which was called Participle. Um, and I think what's really important about this work is it's really interdisciplinary, like these problems kind of that we have in this era kind of go across all boundaries. You've mentioned one, which is kind of public and private, but they also go between different disciplinary boundaries. So it was a very interdisciplinary institute that brought together anthropologists, scientists, um, you know, we had a data person from NASA, uh, designers, and then we worked in these in interdisciplinary ways with our kind of partners in business and the state. So I would write a manifesto, which would be a problem, let's say aging, how are we going to think differently about this? We haven't got the answers. Who wants to come in to this kind of team and support the work to kind of build a solution? And then part of that solution has to be, as in the case with our aging service, which we call Circle, a really strong business case so that, I mean, it's axiomatic that everything I do also costs less because I'm a realist. There's no point kind of designing something really beautiful that everybody can't use. Um, that's not what I'm about. So that's the way that I've been working. Um, I closed that down to write the book Radical Help after a decade of work. And now I'm kind of working, sort of putting together teams in different ways, according to at the moment, my focus is on good work and future work organisations. So bringing people together around that. Mm. Now, in terms of um, besides the social design side, I think you've described yourself as a, as a social activist as well, right? And it's not just, you know, what's logical, but also I think there's an underpinning beneath everything that's sort of driving what you're doing. Well, it's really difficult. You know, I always used to describe myself as a social entrepreneur, but my publisher said, who, you know, talking about the mass market, like nobody knows who they are. Um, but I think activist is really important because, like I say, what matters to me is what is the change we're making every day in everybody's lives in the communities? And that's the kind of activism part of it, really. I mean, radical means going back to the root of things. And so that's what I'm trying to do, which is to say that we have had these incredible social systems. They don't work now. Let's go back to the root and think about where, where these started from and what they need to look like now. And that is a kind of activist cause, I guess. Yeah. I'm curious about the uh, the students that you're lecturing at, at UCL. What are they actually studying? What are their degrees? What are their aspirations? Where are they heading to? Yeah, so they're a really mixed group of people. I'm teaching on the Masters in Public Administration. So they are people who want to live a life of public service, but they come, I mean, they come from governments all around the world. Many of them come from corporations, B Corp type of corporations. So kind of corporations that are kind of doing business to do good, but in the private sector. And others of them, you know, like I'm currently supervising somebody whose thesis who is a doctor. So they come from very different walks of life. I think that that's what's incredible. They are all ages, all nationalities. Um, they're fairly privileged because it costs a lot of money these days to do a master's degree, which is one of the reasons that I teach them alongside members of the community where I live, which is not a privileged community, because I think that that's a kind of important learning that we're all learning together and great for the community as well. I mean, basically, the more we can kind of mix things up um, and connect people to each other in surprising ways, the more we all learn and the better life is. And what are you learning from them? You mentioned they, they inspire you, but what are you learning from them? And, and I'm asking this because I know a lot of organizations out there are struggling to understand what that intake of new recruits actually wants, actually is craving, actually needs. So give us a little bit of insight into that, because I think it'll be useful for somebody who's looking for in, in this fight for human capital. Uh, 
what is it that that human capital is looking for that next generation coming into the market? I mean, this is a really interesting question, because actually, this is right where my current work is on the future of work. And this has been really, really interesting. They are looking for meaning and purpose, which is one of the reasons that I think that this particular masters is so oversubscribed um, in, in a very, very deep way. So they are very scathing of kind of company principles that are up on the wall or any of that kind of stuff. They're looking for something that is kind of that are kind of lived values in a really different way. Um, they're looking to be able to do that in a very just way. I mean, they, you know, I'm a different uh, generation and sometimes they pick me up on, I mean, for instance, I have a metaphor where I talk about kind of how the state should be a better gardener, like they should lay out the garden, they might need to do some weeds, but then they should let get out the way so that the garden can grow. And, you know, last week, somebody said to me, you know, who are the weeds? Like the weed is just the plant in the wrong place. Who are you to talk about weeds? I mean, this is quite an, and this is an interesting challenge, isn't it? I mean, so there's, there's kind of at that level, but also often after the lectures, you know, they form groups and they're kind of, you know, like last year, there was a group of Chileans working on the constitution. And they asked me if I could kind of step into that group with others in Chile to kind of facilitate that kind of discussion. I actually did live and work in Chile some years ago, but you know, that's that's something very exciting. So I think all, always the kind of application of the processes and the way I think to new problems is really important. And it's completely iterative. So the methods in radical help, I'm still using those. But in my current work on the future of work, I've pushed them one step further. And that comes out of kind of dialogue and practice in this way. Interesting. By the way, since you're touching on Chile, we did have Ricardo Lagos, on the show who who was president of chile who was yes. very involved in that whole constitutional process yeah so that's an interesting episode for anybody who's curious yes. and wants to learn a little bit more about that but tell me a little bit about the slight digression um but tell me a little bit about the future of work then so what what's keeping you busy right now where, where are we heading what's what's that going to look like um so i uh i have been running um and what i would call an imagination exercise looking at how we could imagine work in the 21st century and how we should organize to get there. If we go back to the idea that technology revolutions are really important in framing uh, social systems in different ways, one of the things that I think we can see when we look historically is that work always changes in technology revolutions and it usually changes for the better. You can see this pattern where we kind of have kind of moments of crisis, often a kind of crunch, things get worse, but then things get better, but only if we can imagine what that could be. And one thing that's really struck me is that work has become quite fashionable as a topic, but the focus has been very much on how do we get back 20th century rights for 21st century workers. Now, I'm not saying that that is not important. Of course, it is important that we should have kind of sick pay and decent pay and vacations and all of these things, very important. But I think also that we could make much bigger gains than that if we imagine them and we kind of organize in different ways. And those gains would be really critical for uh, resetting uh, economies. Because the other thing that's really important is that when, when you look at the history of work, some of the most important figures have been leaders of corporations because what they realize in a technology revolution is that they cannot move forward. They cannot unleash, if you like, the next phase of capitalism or technology without fundamentally changing the social contract with their workers. So if you think about Henry Ford, he did this, like he, he was not a very nice man, he was anti-Semitic, he shot his workers, but he also realized that he needed to change the social contract or he didn't have a market for his cars. And so he began to pay people differently. He you know, had massive education programs and so on. So 
the work I'm doing is partly with what I call new industrialists, so corporate leaders who see this and want to move forward. That's a very important part of it. And the other part has been these incredible imagination journeys. I've had five locations, post-industrial locations in the UK and two in the US. And I have had 200 encounters with workers, grave diggers, nuclear weapon makers, university professors, doctors, nurses, care, you name it. I've, I mean, I don't think there's anybody I haven't met. And I've asked them to join me in this three hour imagination of rethinking work and organisation. And it's been so interesting. I'm not going to tell you what the outcomes are, but there are five things that everybody agrees on that are utterly transformative, which I'm going to kind of get to work on now and do go to the heart of, which I know from kind of when I'm at the World Economic Forum and places, how do businesses today keep and get that that talent? What is motivating kind of young people to kind of do the work? Um, I've worked with all age groups, but that is very much in, in those findings. How did you get into all of this? Give us a little bit of insight into your, your trajectory. Yeah, so I talk about a bit about this. Um, I actually grew up in Spain and uh, Spain kind of when I grew up sort of at the end of the Franco era was a very poor, very unequal country. I grew up in a middle class family, but it was very obvious that there was kind of uh, poverty all around us. And I think I always needed to understand that. I needed to know why, like at a basic level, we allow this kind of injustice, which, you know, I think more and more social research shows doesn't serve any of us. You know, the more kind of unequal your society, the more everybody is suffering, no matter which end of that inequality they're sitting at. And so I um, I was very idealistic. I went off and I joined a guerrilla army. That wasn't, that didn't kind of work. I then joined a kind of really big international NGO. I kind of, that didn't work. And then I went to work for the World Bank. So I'd kind of run the gamut of the institutions. And what I saw was that all of these institutions were full of like very well-meaning people, people that I'm very grateful to because I learned a lot from them. They're full of resource, but there's this kind of disconnect between things that within the walls of these institutions that say they're changing the world look look sensible and actually how life is lived particularly kind of in in a very poor barrio in latin america for instance where you know i've spent lots of time working in those places in compounds in southern africa or kind of indeed in in the uk and so i really needed to understand like how we could work in a different way to connect the ideas and the possibility that exists in neighborhoods and the kind of all the intent and resource that exists in institutions and i guess that is really what my work is about here you are today. So interesting, from a guerrilla army to the World Bank to, 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 to an academic at UCL. Life is long and rich. In a nutshell. And so, as we're wrapping up the conversation for today, what's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? Well, I say uh, that the kind of the one line from Radical Help is take care of everyone. That actually the most important thing is is that like you don't need to necessarily focus on the kind of poorest people in society if you run a company and you take care of your workers you know in your family you take care of each other like just think about that kind of adjacent possible of taking care of somebody is is a very meaningful act absolutely hillary it's been an absolute pleasure seeing you again hosting you on the do one better podcast looking forward to hosting you back on the show and thanks very much for taking the time it's an absolute pleasure Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Hilary Cotton, professor at the Institute of Innovation and Public Purpose at UCL and author of Radical Help.
For information about this conversation and more than 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.